and just plug myself in, um, and then we will be ready to go. Thank you very much. Um, okay, well, good morning. Um, let me begin by an old joke. Um, they say that Brits and Americans are two people who are separated by a common language. Um, and so I do ask that if I speak too quickly or you don't understand me, throw something. Okay? I'll, I'll be okay. Um, I'll see it coming. Uh, but just let me know if I'm going too fast or you don't understand. I want to uh, be able to communicate clearly with all of us. Um, if you do have a Bible, please do turn with it to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at just the two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13. Uh, but before we get there, I'm going to pray. I'm going to set the scene and then we'll get into that text. So let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to sit under your word, to see and marvel upon our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we come, Lord, we ask that you would teach us, you would grant us grace to believe, Lord, that you would build up our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 1 is where we are. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of Mark, you will know that Mark 1, verse 1, is in many ways the whole book of Mark. It's his whole point. It's his whole purpose. Everything else Mark will say after verse 1 is an argument to prove verse 1. So verse 1 starts off. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Everything else that Mark is going to tell you in his book, he writes to prove those two claims. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That's his point. That's his message. That is what he is desperate for us to grasp. And so his method really is just to present you with unfolding evidence. And that is what you see as you build through chapter 1 and his introduction you first have the testimony of Scripture in verses 2 and 3, followed by the testimony of John the baptizer, John the forerunner. We see, of course, John's message, which will be the same message that Christ preaches, which is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from sin. Return to the Father. John's message is, of course, a shadow of this greater message of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. The next thing we see in the story is Christ come, step forward to be baptized. And at that point, what you have happening is massive in the kind of unfolding of history. 6,000 years of history up until that point. 6,000 years of prophecy up until that point are now coming to climax and culmination. This is the turning point, the moment that is marking the beginning of a new era. And Jesus comes and he steps forward. And as he steps forward to be baptized, he does it to identify with us. That is what we see in his baptism. He begins his public ministry by associating himself distinctly and clearly with broken, ruined sinners. 
From the very beginning, he stands forward for us. He identifies with us. His baptism means the cross. One writer says this, in his first act of his public ministry, the one who had no sin publicly identified himself with those who have no righteousness. The sinless lamb submitted to a baptism designed for sinners in order to foreshadow the fact that he would die a death deserved by sinners. This is what is happening at the beginning here. Having done that, we see the Father and the Spirit at work also in this first chapter of Mark. Here God the Father declares that Jesus is the mediator. He is the true Israel. He is the second Adam. He is the prophet, priest, king. Mark tells us that he tears the heavens open in order to anoint and commission and crown Jesus for his mission ahead. The Spirit comes upon Jesus to empower him and accompany him throughout his ministry and his mission. We have here, as I said, these bits of evidence being given, and here is the greatest bit of evidence. The Father God himself tears heaven asunder and declares, this is my son. You don't get a better witness than God himself. You don't get better evidence than God tearing the heavens asunder. We see also very clearly in that point the Father's delight in his son. As Jesus steps forward and identifies himself with sinners, the Father identifies him as the one in whom he delights. He takes great joy. And that is where we're at as we come to our passage this morning. Verse 12 of Mark 1. So let's read these verses together. I'll read them twice and then we'll get stuck in to them. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I'll read that again. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So what we see here at the beginning of this little text is we are moving now from coronation at the baptism to confrontation. That's where we're going. So from coronation to confrontation, the Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness. Um, this morning as we look at the temptation of Jesus, I want us to kind of be aware we're at a familiar passage and familiarity often, as the saying goes, breeds contempt. We assume we always know what's going on when we are in familiar portions of Scripture. This event, of course, is recorded in greater detail in both the Gospels of Matthew and in Luke. However, Mark does something different. Mark doesn't give you the details of Jesus' battle with the enemy. He doesn't give us a blow-by-blow -blow encounter or even a summary of the encounter. Instead, Mark wants to highlight the theological significance of what is going on in this event. Mark, as I said, is presenting evidence that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so his purpose in including this story is that we see that this is Jesus, the promised serpent crusher, the one who defeats Satan. This Jesus is the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the true Israel, 
the one who will succeed where Adam and Israel have failed. And so that is our plan this morning. That is what I want us to see this morning. We're going to see Jesus, serpent crusher, the true and better Adam. So our text starts with a kind of classic piece of Markan style. Everything in the book of Mark happens immediately. If you read it, you'll be familiar with that immediately. The Holy Spirit, the one who has just descended upon Jesus, drives him out into the wilderness. And as I said, our text moves instantaneously from anointing and commissioning, from coronation to confrontation. The Holy Spirit has an appointment for Jesus in the wilderness. Battle must be done. A war must be waged. There is an enemy who must be fought, and this enemy must be conquered. And so there is no time for a jolly, for reflecting on the events that have just occurred. No time to relax. No time for pats on the back and encouragement. No, immediately this fight is to be fought, and this battle is to be won. And so the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And the flow of Mark's account, this is incredibly important. Jesus, having just been anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, submits himself to him and is driven out into the wilderness to face the enemy. Matthew ties the Spirit's empowerment and purpose together in his gospel as he says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. Another commentator writes, within God's purposes, it was necessary for Jesus to be tempted by Satan himself to confront the devil in face-to-face combat and to conquer him. Now, some of us know the book of James, and we know that God does not tempt, and so this may seem odd to us. Why is God driving Jesus out in order to face temptation? We also know from the book of James that though God does not tempt us, He does test us. He does indeed try us to see if there is reality to us, if we're true or false. The Greek word here for tempt is, in fact, a morally neutral word, which means to test. And this testing can be either good or bad, depending on the will of the one who devises the test. And so in our case this morning, we have both sides of the coin at work at the same time. The evil one seeks to tempt Jesus, to betray the Father, to take the easy way out, to be self-serving and self-interested. On the other hand, it is the will of God that Jesus be tested and shown to be the real deal, shown, proven to be true. That is what is the motivation here. Again, As Mark says, we're getting evidence. I was saying to one of my fellow elders back at LBC recently, that one of the great ironies and sadnesses of the story we read in the New Testament is that the Jewish people are waiting for their long-awaited Messiah. They are waiting for Him to come and literally wage war upon their enemies. That is their expectation of Him. They're waiting for him to come and deliver them from under the heel of their oppressors. They're waiting for him to come and free them from slavery. And one of the great sadnesses is that he did just that. Yet the people had misidentified their greatest enemy. 
This is the sadness we see here. The people of Israel thought the Messiah was going to come and free them from the oppression of Rome, deliver them from the tyranny of a foreign empire. In truth, Jesus came to wage war upon their greatest enemy, the one who had been their enemy since the very beginning. And 1 John 3, 8, John tells us just why Jesus came. John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why the Son of God took flesh. This is His purpose. He has come to destroy the works of the evil one and to deliver us. Now, as a Scot, it feels appropriate to mention the movie Braveheart this morning. I'm sure some of you have seen that movie. There is a moment after uh, Wallace gives his famous rousing freedom speech at the Battle of Stirling Bridge before he goes to the kind of parley pre-battle. He rides out, and as he goes to ride out, his friend Stephen asks him, where are you going? And Wallace turns and kind of snarkily replies, I'm going to pick a fight, right? Now, if you actually know me very well, you'll know that I'm not the biggest fan of that movie. I don't think if you can have a Battle of Stirling Bridge without a bridge, I think that's a problem. But I love that line. And in a sense, this is exactly what Jesus is doing as he's driven out into the wilderness. He's going to pick a fight. He enters the wilderness for battle. Jesus enters the wilderness to go to war. Back in Genesis 3, after the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve have rebelled against God as they are being judged by the Lord in the midst of God's judgment, we find the first inkling of hope in the Bible. We call it the Proto-Evangelion, if you're being fancy. If you want to get it in plain English, we just call it the first gospel. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, 6,000 years have passed from the moment that that promise was made until Jesus appears. And during this time, the Scriptures expand and expound upon the promises surrounding Messiah, and the expectation builds and expands, and His role is explained and is deepened, but at the heart of His mission never changes. He is coming to crush the head of the enemy. The job of Messiah is to destroy Satan and his works. Now, it's interesting to note this morning the location of our battle. It's important. This battle will take place in the Judean wilderness. This is the setting for our confrontation. It is a place of desolation. One author says this, Jesus' public ministry has been supernaturally inaugurated from heaven after waiting for 30 years. He has been commissioned to commence His earthly mission. And at the highest moment, the Holy Spirit drives them into the desert to face severe supernatural assault from hell. Now, the Judean wilderness was barren. It was inhospitable. It was arid. It stretched from the west, from the Dead Sea, towards Jerusalem. And this was a place of danger filled with jagged cliffs, plunging ravines. This is a place where human beings should not be. Right? It is not fit for human life. This is, we should catch, the very opposite of the place where Adam 
did battle with Satan. Adam was tempted in Eden, a garden paradise designed to be the perfect home for human, for human life, a place of plenty, a place of sufficiency, a place of safety. Jesus has none of these things, none of these comforts as he does battle. Jesus will fight the same battle Adam fought, but he will do it in a different location, and he will do it in a very different physical condition. Luke tells us Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry, and I believe that is probably one of the most understated lines in the entire Scripture. Don't eat for 40 days, and he was hungry. No doubt, Luke. No doubt. Unlike Adam, Jesus is tired. He is hungry. He is weakened as he faces this trial. The number 40 is also incredibly significant here. 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasts and he was tried and tempted. Edwards writes this, the 40-day trial of the Son of God continues a theme of Jesus as Israel reduced to one. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses on the Mount of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah was led in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. In each instance, the wilderness is the proving ground, the test of faithfulness to promise deliverance. And Jesus here must succeed where the others failed, where Adam failed, where Israel has failed. Mark's description implies to us that Jesus' temptation occurred throughout the entire kind of six weeks and climaxes in the events described in Matthew and Luke. It wasn't just those events, but no, there is a whole week-long, weeks-long assault that occurs. It's important for us to understand, really important for us to understand, that Jesus endured above and beyond anything that anyone has ever endured in the history of the world. We have a terrible habit of almost dismissing and diminishing the achievement of Jesus here. In Hebrews 4.15, we read, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. And when we read these words, we're grateful for them. But what we have a habit of doing is making them small. It's easy for him. He's the God-man. Doesn't have a sin nature. He'll never face what I face. It was easy. This thinking shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden and what happened in the wilderness here. In the Garden of Eden, understand this. There stood Adam, our representative, and Adam was the strongest of us. He was the best of us. He was perfect. He was flawless. He was sinless. He was healthy. He was happy. He was fit. He was fed. He was well-rested. He was living in perfect fellowship with his wife, living in perfect fellowship with his Lord. Adam stood there, and he faced our enemy, and he crumpled. He collapsed. He was utterly defeated and conquered and completely overcome at the first onslaught. 
He was dropped in the first round, felled with the first punch. And yet, in the Judean wilderness, in the heat of the day, in the cold of the night, in the inhospitable desert for 40 days and 40 nights, for six long weeks with no food, no rest, no comfort, tried and weakened, Jesus endured again and again and again and again and again. For 40 days and 40 nights, for six weeks, with no food and no rest and no comfort, tried and weakened, Jesus resisted again and again and again and again. For 40 days and 40 nights, for six long weeks, with no food, no rest, no comfort, tried and weakened and afflicted, Jesus fought again and again and again and again until eventually exasperated and defeated, the enemy departed from him. We wrongly think that it is easier for Jesus because he didn't have a sin nature. The truth is, none of us have ever endured long enough to know what true temptation is. None of us have ever fought long enough to understand the onslaught that Jesus faced in the wilderness. None of us have ever had the enemy turn the full force of his attention and might against us. Let me throw this out to you. If I leave you in the wilderness with no food and no means to get food, you are goosed, right? You're in trouble. Agreed? Yeah. yeah. Right? You can't speak things into existence. Jesus, however, can. Right? And he doesn't. He can, in fact, transform rocks into bread. He can do it. He can throw himself off the highest pinnacle of the temple, and the angels will, in fact, catch him. Right? He can come down off the cross if he wants. He can do it. And yet, he chooses not to. Enduring, suffering, at all times, and choosing not to. That's power. Derek Thomas writes this. He says, turn this rock, this stone into bread. Do we actually believe that would have been difficult for the creator of heaven and earth? Have you ever seen a picture of Mars? Jesus spoke it into existence. Just like that, without, e without difficulty, with ease. It would not have been difficult for Jesus to turn a few loaves into bread, uh, rocks into loaves. No, of course not. But in doing so, he would no longer have been the suffering servant, the lowly servant of God incarnate in flesh and blood. He would have been, been working, Thomas says, on the initiative of his own divine power for himself and therefore not for us. In his baptism, he identifies with us and at the end, he will die the death for us. And how his heart, Thomas says, must have longed to shrink from that. We see that, right? In the garden, as he weeps and sweats blood. Father, is there another way? Can we do this differently? Do I have to drink the cup of your wrath? Not my will, but yours. Be done. Another author says this, if the king was to be triumphant, he had to demonstrate victory over the evil one at his most clever, 
at his most opportune moment. He could not claim absolute, complete power over sin itself if he could not demonstrate personal power over Satan. His call to deliver sinners would have been meaningless if he himself had not been able to quench the fiery darts of the evil one. Hence, his public ministry begins by a direct confrontation with this powerful being, he who opposes God and all his purposes. Here we see, in many ways, the heart of the gospel and the heart of the good news. Jesus has done for us that which we are unable to do for ourselves. We know the Lord requires perfection. He requires obedience from all his creatures, and yet none of us perfectly obey. From Adam, our first father, all the way through history to those of us sitting in this room this morning, all of us have sinned, all of us far fall short of the glory of God. All of us have earned the wage of sin, which is death. All of us are hell-deserving sinners by nature and by choice. And yet, God in His infinite love and mercy and incredible grace sent His Son into the world to do for us that which He required of us. Jesus came and He lived the life we have not lived. And for every second of every day, He loved the Lord as God with all His heart, His soul, His mind, and strength. He loved His neighbor perfectly as Himself. He faced every temptation the enemy could throw at Him. And He endured and he resisted, and he fought, and he obeyed his Father's will all the way to death, even death on a cross. David Strain writes this, he's there to do what Adam did not do. In the wilderness of a fallen creation, Jesus, the true and better Adam, has come to accomplish what the first and the pristine beauty of the Garden of Eden failed to do. He is there to obey to pass the prohibition. Satan will tempt him in every way as we are, and yet he will be without sin. He will triumph where our first father failed. He came to write a new story, to overwrite the history of Adam's failure, to overwrite the history of my failure, of my sin, with a new story, a story of perfect obedience, the righteousness of Christ counted to me and my sin counted to him. That's what it means when we say he lived a life I have not lived, and he died the death that I deserved. He lived in perfect submission and obedience to his father, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Matthew and Luke show us that Satan attempted to persuade Jesus to abandon obedience and humiliation, to turn away from the cross and yet in the face of every attempt, Jesus reasserts his commitment to his Father's will. That's what we see him do when he answers with the Scriptures. He reasserts his commitment to his Father's will. A will, as I said, which will take him all the way to the cross where he will crush the head of the serpent, break the enemy's power, put him to open shame, Paul will say in Colossians. The second Adam will succeed where the first failed. And our passage ends with a little picture of the results of that success. And it seems like an odd way to finish. If you look at it with me, he says, and he was in, or he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And that seems like an odd little sentence. 
right? What is Mark getting at there? Well, if you know those opening verses of Mark, we know that he alludes several times to the book of Genesis and to creation story. And I think what we see here is him doing it again. After our first parents rebelled against the Lord, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the natural order was broken. The earth was cursed. Our role as masters was forsaken. And we see the cherubim, the warrior angels, those signs and symbols of God's holiness with flaming swords stand guard to prevent our entrance to Eden. Our passage, however, ends with Jesus having succeeded where Adam fails, and we get a small picture of restoration. Here is Jesus, the second animal, Adam, and the angels are not hostile to him. They do not bar him with fellowship from fellowship with God. As he obeys, as he faces down satanic temptation and walks in obedience, they come to adore him and to welcome him and to serve him and to minister to him. And this is a picture of Eden restored. Right? The way at last is opened. This one will make a way. Here the angels are ministering to Jesus, not keeping him out. They're serving him. And the wild animals are with him, just as they were with Adam, as he named them in the garden. Jesus' success is showing us a picture of the curse being undone. That is what we're seeing here. The curse undone through the work and the obedience of Christ. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, right, this is all great and it's beautiful theology, but what does it actually mean for me in my life? Right? Well, here's the truth. Here's where we get to and the facts of the Scripture. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ this morning. Right? That is your choice in life. You can be in Adam and in Adam all die. All are united to him in sin. All are united to him in death. Either Adam is your representative or Jesus is. Either Adam is your head or Jesus is your head. Either you can die with Adam or you can live in Christ. That is the choice that the Scriptures present us with. In Adam or in Christ. Death or life. Heaven or hell. That's what it comes down to. If you are in Jesus, united to him, baptized into his death and resurrection, he stands for you. The crown of his righteousness and eternal life are yours, and you are his. On top of that, however, when you face temptation, you don't face it alone. You face it with this one's aid. Martin Luther called Jesus the great victor. And when asked how he fought temptation, he said this. He said, Satan comes and knocks at the door of our heart. And he says, who lives here? He says, and Jesus answers the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but no longer. And he shuts the door. Our king has gone to war against Satan, and he has emerged victorious. He is victorious over Satan, sin, and the grave. He is yours, and your victory is assured in him if you are in him. So the question this morning is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Have you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus 
Are you trusting in yourself as Adam did in the garden? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he lived a life we have not lived. That he died the death that we deserve and that he is raised for our justification. Lord, help us to turn from sin and trust in him. Lord, help us to turn away from self-reliance and Lord, to be found on him. That is our prayer. Lord, put us in Christ and keep us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.